Okay, now good morning. Hello. Hey, uh, I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the elders here. I do some of the teaching, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Um, I want to start with a little acknowledgement. Like most of you who know me have probably never seen me wearing glasses before. Uh, I, have, I have a confession this morning, and that confession is that I am functionally blind. Um, without corrective eyesight, when I do this, all of you disappear. I see shapes and colors, but I'm functionally blind. I, it's a negative nine on one side, negative seven and a half on the other. So if you know uh, corrective lenses, you know this is serious. I'm not playing around up here, okay? Uh, without the, without, like right now, without these on, uh, I, should, I, I cannot legally go anywhere near the wheel of a motor vehicle. <laughs> I would be a threat to humanity. So, um, but with corrective lenses, when I put these on, when I put these on, all of a sudden, things become clear. All of a sudden, I can see. Things that I cannot see without corrective lenses, now I can see. And that brings us to our passage today. We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, over the last few chapters, we've seen that opposition to Jesus has steadily been building. At the end of Luke chapter 5, the religious leaders of the day started grumbling and questioning Jesus. Then last week at the start of chapter 6, on two different Sabbath days, Jesus did some things, he does some things that violate those same religious leaders' understanding of the Sabbath. And the religious leaders don't like it. They take offense to it. So Jesus is in the process of offending the establishment. He's ticking some people off. And in the final verse of our text from last week, in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, we see that those leaders were filled with fury. They're filled with fury. And began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So people are furious with Jesus. And Jesus is making some enemies. And if you're nearsighted, like I am, if you're nearsighted, and you only look at what's right in front of Jesus, at what's staring him right in the face, you might think this isn't going to go well for him. But Jesus sees otherwise. He's got a different set of, set of lenses when it comes to this opposition. And our whole text today, the past we're looking at this morning, is all Jesus' response to that rising opposition based on what he can see. And here's my claim today. You need to see what Jesus sees. You need to see what Jesus sees. You need the set of lenses, whatever your physical eyesight, whatever you can see with these eyes, you need the lenses that Jesus alone is offering you. So let's pray and we'll take a look at our passage. We'll see what's in our text. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, as we open up the scriptures, I ask that you would speak to us. Would you open our eyes to see this morning? Would you give us your sight? Would you make these words come to life? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you shape us to be the people you call us to be? We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the zealot and Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So the passage begins with the words in these days. So literally as the opposition is rising, this is how Jesus responds. And the first thing he does, he goes up on top of a mountain in order to pray. 
He literally spends a whole night in prayer. His days were so busy with ministry and people that he often didn't have time during the day to pray. So he makes time at night when no one's going to interrupt him. Everybody else is sleeping. But Jesus, for him, prayer is more important than sleep. So he spends the night in prayer. And the reason in this situation why prayer is so important to him is because Jesus is on the brink of making a huge decision. He's about to draft his team. He's about to select the core group of people who are going to labor alongside him in his mission and carry on his mission after he's gone. And so this is a big decision and he needs to get it right. So what does he do in the face of a big decision? Well, he does what all of us need to do whenever we're faced with a big decision too. He devotes considerable time to prayer. He goes before God and he spends a whole night in prayer because prayer is more important. Getting God's voice, hearing from the Lord is more important than sleep for him. And then after his all-night prayer vigil, when day breaks, Jesus goes ahead and he drafts his team. There have been a, a larger group of people who have been following him, learning from him, being his disciples, listening to his teaching and trying to follow and do what he does. But out of this larger group, he pulls 12 names and he selects these 12 people who he names apostles. And the word apostle means a sent one. And so these 12 men, which parallel the 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to become Jesus' lead emissaries, his, his ambassadors, the core of the new people of God that Jesus is forming. And so as opposition is arising to him and to his mission, Jesus responds by first seeing and then selecting his team. Now go on with me. Luke 6, 17 through 19. And he came down with them from the top of the mountain and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and then a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. So after a night of prayer and drafting his team, Jesus comes down the mountain and he finds a level place where a great crowd gathers. And in this crowd, you have the 12 apostles. And then you have the broader group of disciples who are following him. And then now you also have a great multitude of people who come from all over the place. So you've got Jews who've come from the capital city of Jerusalem and traveled north. You've got other Jews from the region of Judea, like from the broader state, who've come to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is. And then you've also got non-Jews. You've got Gentiles who come from places like Tyre and Sidon, which was on the Mediterranean coast. And so you've got all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Some of these people are followers of Jesus, and some of them are just curious. They're kind of checking him out. They've heard about him, and they want to know more. But all of them have come, in verse 18 we see, to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Now you'll remember that Jesus is in trouble with the religious leaders. The leaders are furious with him, precisely because he's been teaching and healing people just like this. And so what does Jesus do when this crowd gathers to hear him teach and heal? Does he see the leaders and, and their opposition and, and their fury at him and back down, therefore, from what he's called to do? Well, no. He keeps right on teaching and healing people. And the reason for that is because Jesus cares about the crowds. Jesus cares about the crowds. He's not concerned about his popularity with the religious insiders. He doesn't care what they think of him. What he's concerned with is the welfare of the masses. He cares about real people and their very real problems. So in verse 19, Jesus is kind of like Taylor Swift trying to walk through a shopping mall. 
Like all the crowd sees him and they're seeking to touch him. They just want a piece of him. They want, they want to just, just touch him somehow. And then what happens is this power comes out from Jesus and he heals them all, which to be very clear is not what happens when people touch Taylor Swift. Like there's no power there, okay? That's where this comparison dies hard. But Jesus cares about the crowds and so he teaches them and he heals them. And church, this is who we want to be as a church too. This is what we want to be about. People flock to Jesus because of both what he did and because of what he said. Because of his deeds and because of his words. And we want to be a place where people come because of what we do and because of what we say. Because of our good deeds and because of our good works. Our good words. We want to have a great reputation in the community for bringing healing into our neighborhood and into the places around us. For doing God's work of service and justice. And we want to back up that reputation with words that explain it and point to Jesus as the reason behind all of it. We want to be about both deeds and words just like Jesus was. And we want people to come here to check Jesus out. So if we as a church, it's an invitation to you all. If we as a church are doing anything, if we're doing things that make it less likely for you to invite a non-Christian friend or neighbor to join us on a Sunday morning, then tell us that. We want to hear from you because we want to be a place that people actually want to come. So we do things like church surveys so we can hear from you. Or if we're doing things in the community, like if, if our reputation out in the community is, is tarnished because we're doing things that are not pointing people toward Jesus, well, like with the CTA, if you see something, say something. Right? Tell us. Come talk to me or one of our other elders and let us know. Like we do not exist just to gather religious insiders. We exist because we want everyone everywhere to know Jesus until there's no place left. That's our mission because that was Jesus' mission too. He wants these crowds to know him. So in the face of opposition, Jesus selects his team and then he cares for the crowds. And that brings us to the main event in our text today. Verses 20 through 26 of Luke 6. And these verses are the introduction to what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. And the Sermon on the Plain takes up the rest of Luke 6 and will be there for the next few weeks as we walk through the Gospel of Luke. But verses 20 through 26, what Jesus is doing is he's actually taking the lenses through which he sees. As he looks at the crowds, as he looks at his disciples, he takes the lenses he's looking through and he offers them to us. He says, take a look, see what I see. So in verse 20, Jesus lifts up his eyes on his disciples. So he sees clearly and then he speaks in order to offer his view to us. And he's speaking primarily here to his disciples, to people who are professing to follow him. But as he speaks, remember, he's still surrounded by the crowds. They're hearing him. They're listening in. And so these words, wherever you're at, if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're just kind of in the crowd, if you're checking him out, these words are for you. These are lenses that he offers to all. So look, at me, look with me at what Jesus sees. Verses 20 through 26. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets." 
But, and note the contrast here, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, with these words, Jesus divides all of humanity into two groups. The first group is poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. And the second group is rich, full, laughing, and popular. Now, I need your help here for a second. We're going to do a little, little poll. You've got two labels that you can apply to these two groups. And this is kind of like a matching game, okay? So, so I want you to pretend for a second you've never read these verses. You know nothing about Jesus. You know nothing about the Bible. And you're given two lists. One list says poor, hungry, weeping, hated. The other list says rich, full, laughing, popular. And your task is to assign each group with one of two labels. One group gets labeled blessed and the other group gets labeled woe. Now, where are you putting the labels? Like, who's putting blessed on the first group? Anybody? Right, like, nobody's doing that. Because in our world, if you use the hashtag blessed, it's not because you're starving and struggling. It's because you just got to go on a cruise. You took a picture of it, snapped, snapped it, took a photo, selfie, look at me, I'm on a boat on the ocean. Hashtag blessed. Right, that's how we do it. But look at what Jesus says here. It's a complete reversal of how we typically see things. See, the word blessed is a word that actually appears all over the Bible. And to be blessed means to be happy. That's a pretty literal translation of the concept. It means happy. But it's not a good time kind of happiness. It's not a happiness that's based on your circumstances. Rather, it's a good life kind of happiness. It's a contentment, a satisfaction that is based on something that goes far beyond whatever your circumstances are. And that's really good news for the first group of people described in these verses. Because circumstantially, they don't have much going for them. They're poor and hungry and weeping and hated. And yet Jesus here says that they're blessed. Now on the flip side of these blessings are a series of woes. And I don't know if you've ever used the word woe like this before. But woe is an expression of grief or pain. It's a way of indicating displeasure at something. It's a state of intense hardship or distress. It's not really a threat. It's not like a, a curse you're calling down on someone. Rather, it's an expression of regret and compassion. It's like saying, I'm really sad for you. Or I'm, I'm worried about you. And Jesus here is worried about people who don't seem to have too many worries in life. These folks are rich and full and laughing and popular. And so what in the world does Jesus see that we don't see? What does Jesus see that causes them to flip the script like this? Well, Jesus in these verses, he sees four truths that he expresses in four contrasting pairs of statements. And take a look at these four truths with me. First, he sees the truth about wealth. See, the truth about wealth. We see this truth in the first pair of contrasts, verses 20 and 24, about poor and rich. And if you're like me, when you think of poor and rich, what you think of first is money. And money is certainly in view here, but it's not the only thing in view. 
The poor in a Jewish context, the Jewish context where Jesus taught, it referred to those who were in desperate need, whose desperation drove them to depend deeply on God. So for the poor, material lack in their lives produces a spiritual need. And that dependence on God, that desperation for God, is actually the source of all the blessing here. And so Jesus, when he says blessed are the poor, he's not blessing poverty in and of itself. He's not saying that being poor is a good thing that you should pursue. It's not. I mean, to be materially poor is is really, really difficult. It makes life really, really hard. It's not a good thing that we should celebrate. But to be spiritually poor, where you're dependent on God, where you're desperate for God, that's a glorious thing. For the materially rich, for those who have a lot in this world, it's really easy to become self-reliant instead of God-reliant. Like the rich can depend on their bank accounts and their investment portfolios and their 401ks. But the poor know that they have nowhere else to go except to God. And when Jesus looks at the rich and at the poor, he doesn't see their current bank account balances. What he sees is their future inheritances. And for the poor, their inheritance here is the kingdom of God. Those who are desperate and dependent on God, they get God and they get everything that belongs to God now and forever. In short, they get everything. But for the rich, well, in verse 24, Jesus says to the rich, you have received your consolation. The word received there literally means to be paid in full. So the rich don't get the kingdom. They merely get their current riches. That's their participation trophy. That's their consolation prize. And Jesus' point is that Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, they've got nothing on the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is true wealth. Earthly money is just a cheap consolation prize. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean that the rich can't be part of God's kingdom too. It's just harder for the rich. Because when you're holding on to money, when your grip is tight around what you have here, It's a whole lot harder to do the one and only thing you have to do to be able to take hold of the kingdom of God, which is hold on to him instead. And so the issue here is not how much money you keep in your bank account. The issue here is where do you keep your trust? What do you hold on to? Do you trust in your riches or do you trust in God? Only trust in God gives you true wealth. Blessed are the poor. Woe to the rich. That's the truth about wealth. Second, Jesus sees the truth about satisfaction. In verses 21 and 25, you see the second contrast here between the hungry and the full. And just as poor and rich wasn't just about money, hungry and full isn't just about food. To be hungry is to have a longing, a desire, an unmet need. And to be full is to be satisfied, to have no unmet need. And these categories certainly include having a hungry stomach or a full stomach. But Jesus is using the notion of hunger to speak to the greater issue of satisfaction in life as a whole. Now, today's the Super Bowl. That's happening later on today. Sadly, the Cleveland Browns are not playing. But um, several years ago, uh, perhaps the greatest Super Bowl player in world history, uh, Tom Brady, Quarterback Tom Brady was interviewed on the show 60 Minutes. And some of you have seen this. You'll remember this. But 
Tom Brady at the time, he was at the height of his success. He's a multimillionaire. He's married to a supermodel. He's just won his third Super Bowl. Like life was really, really good for Tom Brady. Things were, things were going well for this dude. But in this interview, this is what he said. <clears throat> in a really candid moment, kind of unprompted, he just says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I'm 27. I've done it. And what else is there for me? And the interviewer asks him, what's the answer? And Brady just says this. He says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady had everything. But he wasn't full. He was empty. He wasn't satisfied. And that's the truth that Jesus is pointing at here. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French philosopher. And he famously put it this way. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Pascal is saying that we've all got a hole in our souls. And what we do is we try to go through life filling that hole with all kinds of things. With Super Bowl rings and supermodels. With success and with sex. With achievements and relationships. With literal stuff like houses and cars and clothes. And we take that stuff and we stuff it into the hole trying to fill it up. But y'all doing that, trying to fill the hole with that kind of stuff, it's it's like eating candy bars hoping that it'll fill your stomach. Like no matter what Snickers may say, you might temporarily mask the hunger, but in the end you're just gonna end up feeling sick. Because the truth about satisfaction is that the hole in our in our souls is too big for anything but God Himself to fill. Nothing else will work. And those who are hungry, those who long for God, they will in the end be satisfied. Like the only way to be satisfied is to direct your hunger to the only one who can actually meet that need. It's the only way to do it. And so are you hungry? Are you hungry? Do you have that longing for God? Or are you settling for candy bars? Blessed are the hungry. Woe to the full. That's the truth about satisfaction. Now third, Jesus sees the truth about justice. In the second half of verses 21 and 25, we see a contrast between those who weep and those who laugh. Now right away here, you may wonder, what's wrong with laughing? (laughs) And the answer to that is nothing. There's nothing wrong with laughing. I mean, laughing is a good thing. Jesus himself was pictured throughout the Gospels thoroughly enjoying life. Jesus must have laughed very often. Some of the things he says are downright hilarious when you look at them and what he really is saying. And so laughter in general is certainly not the problem here. Laughter's good. But the word for laughter here actually carries a very specific connotation. It's the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when bad guys kind of condescendingly mock their victims. And so this kind of laughter is the laughter you might hear from a villain like the Joker in Batman or Bellatrix Lestrange in Harry Potter. This is the mocking, condescending laughter of a bad guy who thinks he's getting away with something. That's this kind of laughter. Now on the other side of that laughter here, we see weeping. 
And in the biblical narrative, the most common reason that people weep is in response to the suffering of painful injustice that's done in the world. We live in a world where there are real villains, where there are real bad guys who really do bad things. And as bad guys laugh, what God's people do is they weep. They weep over evil. They weep over suffering. They weep over injustice. They look at things like what's happening between Israel and Gaza right now. Or they look at the migrant crisis happening here on our own borders and in our own city. Or they look at the corruption of politicians or the brokenness of communities or any number of real world evils. And rather than laughing at those who are hurting, God's people weep with them. They cry out to God in tears, pleading with God to intervene and do something about it. And in this way, this third pairing points us to true justice. Jesus is reminding us here that there is a God of justice who rules over the world. God sees all the evil in our world. And he actually promises to do something about it. And what Jesus alludes to here is the reality that in the end, God will bring full and final justice. He will turn the weeping of his people into laughter, and he will turn the laughter of the villains into weeping. Cosmic justice will be done. And when it is, will you be weeping or will you be laughing? When you see the evil in the world, how do you respond? Or to put it another way, is your heart sensitive to the suffering of others? Is your heart sensitive to the suffering of others? Blessed are you who weep. Woe to you who laugh. Jesus sees the truth about justice. And then fourth and finally, Jesus sees the truth about approval. In verse 22, Jesus speaks to people who do not get approval from those around them. These people are hated and excluded and reviled and spurned because of their faith. You'll notice that this reaction is all on account of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man here is Jesus. That's his favorite nickname for himself. And so this isn't people treating you bad simply because you're just a jerk. Like that's not what he's referring to here. This is people mistreating you explicitly because of your commitment to follow Jesus even when it's not popular to do so. And there's a progression here. It starts with hate. So if you follow Christ closely, some people will not like you. Then it builds to exclusion. Some people just won't invite you to some things. You'll be left out. And then it goes to reviling, which is slander or verbal attack. So some people will actually say mean things to you and about you. And then it finishes with spurning, which is pushing you away altogether. Like some people will just cut you off entirely. This week, earlier this week, I actually spoke with a guy named Masum, who uh, in our Athletes in Action ministry we partner with over in Italy for, for some ministry purposes. And uh, Masum, he grew up in a Muslim family. And then he later became a Christian. He converted to Christianity. He started following Jesus. And when Masum started following Christ, his family cut him off. They don't speak to him anymore. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is forecasting here. Like that doesn't mean that that's going to happen for everyone like that. But it does mean that that sort of ostracism is a distinct possibility for those who are going to follow Jesus. Like Jesus is warning us here that following him is not a way to increase your popularity. And in fact, if you follow him, it might sink that popularity ship altogether. Like you'll notice he says when these things happen, not if. But then he also says that when these things happen, you're actually blessed for it. 
And you should rejoice and leap for joy. You should celebrate. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that that's not your default reaction when that kind of stuff happens in your life. So why does Jesus give this command to rejoice? Well, in verse 26, Jesus goes on to pronounce woe on you when all people speak well of you. And Jesus is not condemning the notion of having a good reputation. Like earlier we talked about, we want to have a good reputation. That's a good thing. We want that. Rather, what Jesus is doing in verse 26 is he's pointing to the truth about approval. And to understand that truth, we need to look at the end of both verses 23 and 26. So in these lines, Jesus talks about how their fathers, their fathers, so the forefathers of those who are currently opposing Jesus, talks about how their fathers responded in a very particular way to the prophets of old. And the final line of both of these verses is actually identical with one little exception. And it's the word false in verse 26. So follow me here. The, the false prophets of the Old Testament, what they were, they were public speakers who told everyone exactly what they wanted to hear all the time. So they never called anyone out. They never told anyone they were wrong. They never said, hey, what you're doing is, is evil. They never, they never made those kind of confrontational comments. What they did is they just kind of rubber stamped whatever behavior was going on. And they themselves lived just like everyone else. Like they lived in a world that didn't honor God and they themselves didn't honor God. They were just like everyone else. And for that reason, because they came and they said what people wanted them to say, for that reason, people loved them. Like the false prophets preached feel-good messages that made people happy. And then, and then the people, they clapped for them and they said, hey, we like you, this is good. They, they gave them their approval in response. So the false prophets, they got approval from the crowds. But for the true prophets in verse 23, for the ones who truly followed God and actually spoke God's words, the people which sometimes weren't easy to hear, the true prophets weren't very popular. They said things that people didn't want to hear. And therefore, they didn't get the approval of the crowds because they lived differently and their lives were kind of a confrontation to the crowds at large. So they didn't get that kind of approval. But whose approval did they get? Whose approval did they get? They got God's approval. See, you can go through life chasing the approval of people. You can be a chameleon. You can do what everyone else does. You can try to fit in. And you can get really, really good at it. You can gain all kinds of popularity. But if the whole world cheers your name, if the whole world claps for you and approves of you, but God does not, what then? Well, Jesus tells you here, woe to you. But on the flip side, if the whole world hates you and curses you and drives you out and expels you, but God gives you his approval, well, then what? Well, blessed are you, for your reward is great in heaven. This is the truth about approval. At the end of the day, there's only one verdict that matters. It's not that of the crowds. It's that of the God of the universe. And whose approval are you living for? Whose approval are you living for today? So this is what Jesus sees. He sees the truth about wealth, the truth about satisfaction, 
the truth about justice, and the truth about approval. And in all of this, Jesus sees things that we so often miss. He sees differently than we do. And how does he do it? What enables Jesus to see like this? Well, at the end of the day, what Jesus has is a different perspective. As you look at these statements of blessing and woe, you'll notice a few time-oriented features. In verses 21 and 25, the word now appears several times. Additionally, throughout these statements, there's a future aspect to them. So right now, this is true, but in the future, something else will be true. In the future, you will be satisfied. You will laugh. You will get a reward. Now, here's the problem for us. The reason we don't see what Jesus sees is because we are too nearsighted. We're far too nearsighted. We see the now right in front of us, but we don't see the then. We just see things as they currently are. We don't see things as they will be in the end. But Jesus has a different perspective. He's not nearsighted. In fact, he's got perfect vision. We've got an earthly perspective, but he's got an eternal perspective. Now, some of you may have seen this before. But you can think about it like this. If eternity were a line stretching forever in both directions, so this is eternity, it goes on and on and on, a line in both directions. Where would your life be on this line? What is your life? Well, your life is a little dot. It's a little dot. For me, that little dot is 1985 to, to the present, to right now. But it's just a little dot on this timeline of eternity. And as I'm here in my little dot, all I see is the dot. I just see what's right in front of me. I'm nearsighted. But Jesus isn't trapped in the dot. Jesus rises up over the top of the whole line and he sees the whole picture. He sees what is right now, but he also sees what will be forever and ever and ever. And in these verses, what he's doing is he's giving us his lenses to look through to see what he sees. To see that the line is far greater than your little dot. To see that the rewards that await those who walk faithfully and humbly with him are worth it. To see that to be poor and hungry and mourning and mistreated because of your faith in Jesus is always worth it. Because Jesus is always worth it. Like one way to look at it is like this. If you're a person who doesn't know Christ, then whatever your lot is in this life, whatever your dot looks like right now, this is as good as it can possibly get for you. Like, like after this, after this dot ends, whatever comes next is not going to be better. It's going to be worse. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, then no matter how good your life is here, then this is actually as bad as it gets for you. The best is yet to come. Like, I, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a funeral. Some of you, I'm sure, have. But there, there's something that never happens at a funeral. You, you will never see this at a funeral. You'll never see this image. You'll never see this at a funeral. Like you won't see a U-Haul truck lined up behind a hearse carrying all the person's stuff to the gravesite with them. Like U-Hauls don't follow hearses because you can't take any of it with, the, with you. Like if you don't know Christ, whatever you've got in your U-Haul, that's the best you can do. And that's the end of it. In the end, you lose everything. But if you do know Christ then this life is as bad as it gets for you. You don't get a U-Haul for eternity, but you do get the kingdom of God. You do get everlasting satisfaction. You do get never-ending joy and laughter. 
You do get eternal rewards. For a follower of Christ, the best is always yet to come. It's always yet to come. And that's the perspective that Jesus is offering us here. Jesus is urging us to put on his lenses and to live accordingly. Now at the end of C.S. Lewis's famous Chronicles of Narnia, in the final paragraphs of the final book, in a chapter titled, Farewell to Shadowlands, the Pevensey children are afraid that they're going to be sent back from Narnia to England once more. They've, they've had these adventures in Narnia over the course of these seven books, and they've, they've grown to love Narnia. And they're afraid that they're going to get sent back to England, back to their normal lives once again. And uh, they, they love Aslan's country. They, they love Narnia, where Aslan lives, and, and they want to be with him there, and they, they don't want to leave. And these final scene, Aslan, the great lion, he assures them that this time they won't actually have to go. They get to stay in Narnia. And C.S. Lewis writes that when they hear that news, a wild hope rises within them. And Aslan tells them that at the beginning of this final book, when they found themselves in Narnia, this time around it was because there had actually been a real railway accident. And in the final paragraphs of the Narnia story, Aslan says this to the children. He says, your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And then Lewis writes these words. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Church, this is what awaits those who follow Jesus. It's an eternity in which every chapter is better than the one before. And the key to it all, at the center of this passage and at the center of what Jesus says, the key to it all is the one who is speaking, Jesus himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. He was God from eternity past, but he entered into our earthly existence and he became a man. He had all the power of God to heal and do miracles and do anything he wanted. And yet he became materially poor. He experienced hunger. He wept over evil. And in the end, he was hated and excluded and reviled and spurned. And he went to the cross where he was literally cut off. His dot disappeared. But then God did what only God can do. Because of Jesus' faithfulness, even to the bitter end, God the Father raised him from the dead to new and everlasting life. In the greatest reversal of all time, the Father brought Jesus back and gave him the whole line. He gave him everything. And because of that greatest reversal, today God offers you a great reversal as well. He offers you the whole line. He offers you true satisfaction 
and everlasting joy and approval from God and rewards in heaven and a place in his never-ending kingdom where every chapter is better than the one before. And all of it hinges on Jesus. All of these blessings and all of these woes, they depend on what you do with him. And in this text, these are all addressed to you. And so this morning, what do you see? Which group are you in? Are you living for the dot or are you living for the line? Do you see Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lenses that you offer us. That you let us see what we would so often, so easily, what we do so easily miss. The truth about what ultimately matters. An eternal perspective that we need. Father, you say, Jesus, Lord Jesus, you say that blessed are you who are poor and who are hungry and who weep and who are hated. God, we don't want those things materially, but we want those things. We want to be blessed people. And so give us riches in you. Help us to trust in you. Give us a hunger for you that we would long for you. Help us to weep over the things that you weep over. And help us to find our approval, our identity, who we are, and what you say is true about us. And make us a people who live for the whole line, not just for this momentary blip of a dot. And I pray for those who are here today, Father, who, who don't know Jesus yet, who are trapped in, in, in the dot. Would today be a day where they put their trust in you, where they take a step into eternity and into what ultimately matters most. God, some object that, that uh, people can be so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good, but the truth is the people who are the most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. And so make us eternally heavenly minded that we would do incredible good here in the world, that we would be people like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.